Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and come back, go ahead and see if we can get that first slide up. The connector's not working. I've just got to learn on Sunday morning, whenever I decide to put up slides, something goes wrong. So uh, with it, the connector's not working. Say, what is that building right there? Well, that building's got a name. It is the Home Insurance Building. It used to be on the northeast corner of LaSalle and Adams. The significance of that building is this, is that it is the first building uh, that was described as a skyscraper. Uh, it was 10 stories tall. They added uh, two more stories to it eventually. It was built uh, in 1885. It officially opened. It was demolished uh, eventually in, in 1931. And uh, it was a skyscraper. It was uh, one of these buildings that, uh, until this point, many people had just built buildings by stacking stones and bricks upon one another. This is uh, unique because all of a sudden steel was uh, in buildings. This is the first time that you had a building this high made with steel, and suddenly they realized we can build a whole lot taller. Uh, what this led to was the fact of a, a term called the skyscraper. Now think about this, the building's built in 1885, and, and uh, no one is really flying at this point. Perhaps a few people have been up on a string, on a balloon, basically, uh, but that's it. Uh, and for them, they're thinking, wow, this is really tall. Now they had forgotten the fact that there had been taller structures in the world. The Great Pyramid uh, in Egypt for 3,500 years was the tallest structure known to mankind. Uh, and held that until a few years later, well, 3,500 years later, uh, that you had uh, the uh, cathedral in Lincoln, uh, England, and then Strasbourg, Germany, this cathedral that was built that uh, was the highest in the world until the point where you started having these skyscrapers built. Now, for us, it's kind of a, a joke that you have the term skyscraper. Uh, there is a building today, uh, if we can have the second slide there. Uh, this is one that is a little bit more famous. It is, and can we get to click there? Just have to click on the line. There you go. Uh, the Burj Khalifa. You go, how tall is that building? Well, that building uh, is about 2,700 feet high, so it's about a half mile high. And that is the tallest building. We used to have the Sears Tower as being the tallest building, now Willis Tower. Now I think it's the Nameless Tower uh, because of the, the buying rights. But whatever it is now, uh, that's the tallest building in the world. It, it's a half mile high. They still call it a skyscraper. Uh, in the city of Chicago, uh, they talk about the cities that have skyscrapers, and you've got many in Japan now that have skyscrapers of all kinds. Of course, New York City has over 300. The city of Chicago has over 135 skyscrapers. These are buildings that they categorize now as skyscrapers that have to be over 300 feet high in order to be a skyscraper. And as you look at this, this is the best uh, that we have as far as how high we can build. And we know we're not getting close to scraping the sky. Right. You know, we now have planes and we now have rockets and we now have satellites and we realize we aren't even close to getting up into heaven, if we would think. But we still insist on calling these things skyscrapers. 
And so what we have in this story is mankind's, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 11, is mankind's attempt to build something that gets into heaven. Bill, we'll be waiting a few seconds for the next one, so you can, we got to wait on those slides, so I'm just telling you that uh, back there. But uh, as you read this passage, and we did not read the one passage this morning, you go, why? It's Genesis chapter 10. If you look at Genesis chapter 10 and you look through that, there's a whole bunch of names. And I didn't want Brian to have to read through all of those names and try to even come close to getting all of them right this morning. But what we have in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11 is a section known as the Table of Nations. We'll eventually see how many are there. But then at the end of this, of these nations that are suddenly descendants of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and then descendants of them, uh, they gather themselves together and in chapter 11 decide they're going to build something that gets up to heaven. Now, we're not going to preach against skyscrapers this morning. That cities are bad. That's not what we're going to talk about this morning. But there's an attitude amongst the nations that starts off and shows itself in the Tower of Babel that the nations don't want to follow God. They don't want to follow what he says. They don't want to follow what he wants them to do. But in spite of that, you see in the section that God, despite mankind's uh, attempts to deny him, ignore him, uh, compete with him, that God is still concerned for all the nations. In fact, if we were to come up with a theme, it would be this. God is concerned that all nations follow him. That all nations follow him. And this morning, we're just going to look at two points this morning, one in chapter 10, one in chapter 11. And the first point, as we see in chapter 10, is this, is that God's concerned about the nations. As you look at this listing in Genesis chapter 10, just going back to this, you see that it starts off that now these are the generations. This is Moses's way of saying, I'm giving you a new chapter. Realize there weren't chapter, Moses wasn't putting in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, but he had these ways of dividing out sections of his book, and they usually started off with a statement, these are the generations of. In this case, it's the generations of the sons of Noah, Ham, or Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. And what we're seeing is not necessarily what Ham, Shem, and Japheth do, it's what all their descendants are doing. All of these individuals that you see named here in this list, and as you go through, there's a listing that starts off in verse 2, the sons of Japheth. And you can see all these different sons of him that are listed. And then verse 6, you see all the sons of Ham as they're listed out there. And then eventually, as you go down, you get down to verse 21, that you see this listing of Shem. And Shem has all of his sons listed there. And it is uh, that this is a unique document in ancient literature. Nowhere else in ancient literature do you have an attempt by anyone to come up with a list of nations, peoples. More often than not, when you read the writings of uh, ancient cultures and the like, they're glorifying their own culture and that's it. They're not talking about any other cultures. They're talking about what their culture did. And so they never even really address other nations. And so when you have a document like this that goes through and lists all these different nations, and the unique thing is you read this list of nations, 
Israel and their great-great-grandfathers not listed. Now, they are descendants of Shem, but as you go through this list, Israel's not even mentioned here. Okay, and it would be through Abraham and Terah. They're not mentioned. This is just a list in the middle of the writing of Moses for the nation of Israel that he has this listing of these nations, and you have a number of different individuals that are listed. You have descendants of Japheth. You have 14 of them. You have 30 from Ham and 26 from Shem. And you come up with 70 nations if you were to count it out. And you go, why 70 nations? Well, it's really the idea of completeness. Uh, the number seven and 10 were numbers of completeness and uh, something that you, you have everything that you possibly need. And you have this number of 70. But you also have to realize this, that Moses is writing a story here. And that eventually when the nation of Israel goes down into Egypt and you find them going down into Egypt, how many of them are there when they go into Egypt before they go into captivity? There's 70 of them. See, he's just kind of showing, okay, you have all these nations of the world, and then God chooses one certain group of people that he's going to bring, the one who's going to bring that promised deliverance that was promised to Eve, that there would be Satan crushed, him defeated, that some way, shape, or form that's going to happen. It's going to come through the nation of Israel, but in this whole process, it's this nations that are there, and then God calling out a very insignificant individual out of that nation, those nations to be the group that he chooses to be the ones that eventually bring the Messiah, the Savior. And as you look at this list, it's not everybody. Okay, sometimes as you read through this list, you'll find place names, like uh, you get down to verse number uh, four, and you have the sons of Jabin, Elisha, and Tarshish, and Ketim, uh, and Dodanim, and you go, well, Tarshish, what is that? Uh, it's what we would call modern-day Spain. Or Ketim, which would have been uh, the island of Cyprus. Or you have uh, Dodanim, which is the island of Rhodes. Uh, and you have place names given. You have individuals' names given. We'll see an individual by the name of Nimrod and Peleg and individuals like that. You have cities named. You have the city of Asher and other places like this that are city names. This is not a complete list of every nation of the world. But you do have these people that are mentioned that we can figure out where they're at. And I thought the best way for you to understand where all these individuals end up is just to see on a map where they end up. And so, Bill, if we could have the next slide uh, come up here. And as you look at this, there's a map as you go through, you find that you have the three different groups of people. You have Japheth, and as you see him, he generally ends up, his descendants end up in Europe. That's where they generally end up. It's not the only location they end up at. In fact, as you trace it out in the history of mankind, uh, a lot of these individuals are ones that end up in the Far East. India and places like that, these descendants of Japheth uh, that are there. You have Ham, who is generally centered, uh, his descendants are generally in Egypt, but you also see this band that is on what we call the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. That it's there that you have these descendants that are dropped there, but we'll, we'll take ironically that not only were those descendants there, there's going to be an individual by the name of Nimrod who starts Babylon and Assyria. 
But then you see the descendants of Shem. They're generally in the central region of what we call the Middle East. Uh, and you see them listed there, uh, all the different names. You say, I can't see all the different names. I'm giving you a general picture here. Uh, why don't we have the next slide here, just so that we can understand a little bit more of some of these names. This uh, map here highlights where all these individuals are at. You have the yellow named individuals are the ones that are descendants of Ham. And you see this listing that you have this small boxes there. You have the people of Canaan. Remember, the history of Israel is going to come in conflict with this one who's cursed by Noah, the Canaanites. And you can't really tell because you'd have to pump all those small names in there. But all those names are individuals that are listed there are ones who are going to be ones that Israel is going to have to combat against. You do see that you have some of these yellow names that are in different places. They're in Shinar, which is where uh, Babylon and Assyria eventually is going to be at. Uh, you have in this green area, you have Shem, but you have individuals that are in some of the territory of where Ham is at. In fact, some of them are Africa. So this list, understand when God's putting this list, they're going to general regions of the world after what we would call the Tower of Babel, uh, but they don't all end up going in the same direction as descendants. And I do have to note this, that there are, as you look at this list, several individuals that are a part of this list. There's three groups specifically targeted in this listing, and one of them is an individual that you find uh, in verse number, uh, verse number eight. You have this individual who is a descendant of Cush, uh, he's a descendant of Ham, and his name is Nimrod. And you see this said about him, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala. And so you look through this and you find this one Nimrod who's described as a great hunter and it's probably not talking about the fact that he is hunting down animals. It's really describing the fact that this man is the first individual that we would describe as setting up kingdoms. In fact, some people think that he is the chief individual when it comes to building the Tower of Babel. Because he is the one who founds Babylon, and so he is the one that's there, and then founds all these cities along this. This is a man who is going to, by his actions, uh, be one that is the first empire builder, where he's going to forcibly collect people together under his own rule. Uh, and he is this, it, that he is a great hunter to the Lord means simply this, that God does indicate he's a great human being as far as what he accomplishes in the world but you have nimrod and so you have this individual who's eventually going to parent individuals like the babylonians and the assyrians who are going to be the ones who cause the nation of israel all sorts of difficulty the assyrians first and then the babylonians uh, these ones by their empires uh, many almost a thousand years after this are going to be uh, ones that cause great deal of problem in the nation of israel and so this is listed here 
this nimrod uh, for the nation of israel to suddenly look back and go oh these people have been building empires forever that's just in their culture there is a second individual that is mentioned specifically and there's something unique about him you find him in verse number 25 here's there's a, a dis- individual who's a descendant of shem and his name is eber or some have translated it this way hebrew okay uh, but he bore two sons the name of the one was peleg for in his days was the earth divided and his brother's name was Joktan. now you follow this out peleg doesn't have any mention of his descendants here his brother Joktan did all sorts of descendants for him you go, why? Because Peleg's not going to be mentioned until the next chapter in the line of Shem, and he's eventually going to be the great-great-grandfather of Abraham. But you say, what, why does it all of a sudden say that in the time of Peleg, the earth divided? For many years, uh, there was this thought that it might be describing the fact that when people got off the ark, uh, sometime uh, the continents had to divide. Okay, how do we get animals in certain locations? It certainly wasn't that people, you know, got them in little canoes and got them across to different places. No, there was a time probably that the continents were together and some suggested the fact that maybe this was talking about the fact that in his time frame that the continents divided. Okay, the earth divided. That's kind of the text that is there, that the earth was divided and some might say it's talking about the landmass. But I will have to say this, I have come to the conclusion that if you read through the context, the context is not talking about landmass, it's talking about people. And so when it says that in the time of Peleg, the earth divided, what's being talked about is that during his time frame, in his lifetime, was when the Tower of Babel happened. When all the nations were divided out. His name literally, Peleg, means division. That's what his name means. But it was in his time frame that all the world separated out uh, and divided out. And so you have this individual who is in the line of Abraham, but it says in this man's time frame, this is when the Tower of Babel happened. The earth divided. But then you also see one other group that's specifically uh, mentioned and uh, talked about and we're given the boundary line specifically of where they live. I want you to go back to verse number uh, 15. Here you have Canaan. You go, who's Canaan? Canaan's the one who's cursed. Okay, he's cursed by Noah. You have his descendants here. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Uh, we would know him as the Hittites uh, would eventually come from Heth. The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Averdites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Afterwards were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and here's their boundary lines. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, which is way up in uh, Lebanon on the coast, and goes all the way down to Gerar unto Gaza, which is in southern Israel along the coast and goes all the way over unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Adama and Zeboim and unto Lasha. And you go, what, what are we given here? We're given the boundary lines that eventually, as you read the story of Abraham, God gives him the boundary lines that are that and says, this is the land you're going to have. 
I mean, what Moses is doing is just laying out in the story. Here's where the Canaanites are at. And now you're on the, the, the boundary line of the promised land. You're reading the story. This is the land that God wants to give you from up in Lebanon all the way down to the southern border over to the Dead Sea area. This is your land that I'm going to give you as I promised to Abraham. And it's now your land. The Canaanites have been there and you are going to be part of the judgment upon them because they are cursed. And so this table of nations just kind of, from the start, goes, okay, God knows all these nations. He's got all of them set here. He knows what's going on amongst them and that he is concerned about what they do. He hasn't mentioned his own special people yet. He hasn't talked about them really. He's just saying, here are the nations and I've got them set out here. I know who they are. I know their family lines. I, I know exactly what they're like. And so you see in Genesis chapter 10 that God's concerned for the nations. It's not just the nation of Israel. He's a God of all peoples. He's a God of the nations. You read through the scriptures. And from the start, this unique document that you can't find this type of thing anywhere else in, script, or in, the, in the ancient world, God is just simply saying, I'm concerned about not just a certain group of people, but all nations. And he's involved in that. Okay, we don't need the slides anymore because we're going to get to the second point here. God is concerned for all nations, but then you also find this, that God is concerned that all nations keep his commandments, that they act as if he really does have a say in their life, that he really is the king of all the nations. That brings us to this story in Genesis chapter 11, to which we're very familiar with. It breaks up, this story breaks up into four parts very easily. We see the story getting set for where they're at in Babylon, and then this idea that we're going to build Babylon, and then we're going to have God come down and confuse the nations, and then they go away from this tower of Babylon. You see the start, uh, it's really going from that point where it's talking about the flood, and after it's happened, now all these family members and descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth are kind of going away from the mountains of Armenia there where Ararat is at, and they're moving down. And it says this, verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, or the idea is that they're journeying to the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. This is down uh, by in the middle of the Tigris and Euphrates River, down almost to the Persian Gulf where this plain of Shinar is at. It's well watered. It's a great place if you're trying to raise crops. You've always got a source of water. And so they have come down out of the mountains following probably the Tigris and Euphrates River, and they've all come to this place in the land of Shinar. Now, there's a hint in this that this is not going to go well. If you read the book of Genesis and you read the whole thing through, you find out when people go to the east, it's not going to go well. Adam and Eve were kicked out and went to the east of the garden. When Cain was cursed, where did he go? He went to the east. And as you read the story of Lot, when he's got the opportunity to stay in the land of uh, promise, he decides that he's going to go eastward and ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. This context here says they went east. It's Moses' way saying, uh-oh, this is not going to go well. It's a hint. This isn't going to go well. And you say, well, what's wrong with this? 
What's wrong with them going down and finding a place where they can raise crops and be able to do this? It's none of those things. Okay, God wants people to use the resources that are here on the earth to help society and mankind. It's not that that's the issue. It's this issue that when God got Noah off the boat, he made the statement to the the children and to Noah's descendants that they are to be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly the earth and multiply therein. You find that in Genesis 9 and verse 7. He said, I want you to go across the whole face of the earth. I want you to multiply across the earth. I want you to get across everywhere and be in every place on the globe that you are now on. And what the, these individuals, descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they've all got the same name, same language, so they can all communicate with one another. They just kind of gather themselves and go down the river here and say, let's stop here in this single location and let's not go anywhere else. And you kind of go, well, I don't know about that. Well, you then have to go and say, okay, there's this prideful construction that takes place. And it is prideful. Look at verse number three. It says this, and they said one to another, go to, or the idea is come, let's get together. Uh, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, or you talk about this tar, you think about the region today, it's known for its oil. Back then, that oil petroleum product would have been great for putting stuff together, gluing it together. You'd find it. Uh, they have the slime for mortar. Verse 4, they said, go to. Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You now find out by their own statement what their attitude is. What they declare right at the end is this, is that we don't want to be scattered across the whole face of the earth. We don't want to do what God said and saying, go across the whole face of the earth. We want to stay in one place. And in this, what you also see is that they don't want to listen to what God has said. They don't want to obey his command. But what they're thinking is this, is that they can replace God. Okay, that somehow they can basically make themselves equal with God. Because they said, let us make a tower. And you say, what was this tower like that they were going to build? And you have in that region a number of these uh, still existent today. You can go and see this in the region. Uh, more than likely, what they started to build is what we would call a stepped pyramid. Not like exactly what you find in Egypt where it's this nice flat-sided thing, but they would have had this stair kind of case, larger staircase type of structure that they built as a pyramid. And they would have had up the side a staircase that would have gone all the way up to the top and at the end where they had and all of these pyramids, because these were basically constructed eventually for gods, was that you had at the top of this pyramid what was known as the gate. You say the what? The gate to heaven. This is what it was known as years and cultures later. It's described as the gate. And what they were going to do was build something that got up to heaven, which allowed God to be able to, well, them be as high as where God is at and that God could easily come down and be amongst them. But they were where God was at. It was the gate into heaven. They somehow thought that they were building a skyscraper or a heaven scraper. 
They thought that they were going to build something that could get them into the presence of God by their own effort and their own making that they could do this. And it's a very prideful statement. Look at how it describes it. And I just want you to look at verse number four and go back and look at how many times where it talks about us and we, what we're going to accomplish, okay? Verse four, they said, go to, let us build us a city and tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. About what we're going to accomplish what we're going to do as a group, we're going to do something that really God doesn't want us to do, but we're going to come and do things equal to him. In fact, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make ourselves really important by the building of this. We're going to make ourselves known. Now, ironically, I have to put this in here. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, eventually in Genesis chapter 12, where we have an individual who God says, okay, I want you to go to another land and I'm going to bless you and give you a name. It's to Abraham. God, God did allow certain people to be known in that because he said, okay, I'll let you have a reputation, be known. But here what this group of people is saying is, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves by doing this. We're going to build something that gets up into the heavens and impresses God. Very little did they realize that they weren't anywhere closer to God than when they started. They weren't going to really make a name for themselves, uh, but they were just simply exemplifying the pride of the individual who started all of this. You go, who's that? Satan himself. You say, what are they doing here? Well, it is uh, interesting that they're reflecting the heart of an individual who is well connected with Babylon throughout history. Satan himself. I want you just for a second here, uh, put something here. We're going to come back to this passage and I want you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 is a passage that is talking uh, that you have a prophecy being made to the king of Babylon, and then beyond that, someone that's working behind him. Okay, someone who's giving him the energy and the ideas that he has. And you see in verse number 12 of Isaiah chapter 14, where it's talking about where Babylon will eventually be destroyed. It says this, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Okay, so this is talking about who? Well, Lucifer is this, it's just a, a translation there of the, the day star, this bright one, son of the morning, you've fallen from heaven. So who's being talked about here? Well, we know from Revelation that there isn't a time where the angels fell from heaven being drawn away by one by the name of Satan himself who drew away a third of these stars that fell from heaven. The statement's made about this, and then you have this statement, okay? You're one who does weaken the nations, okay? He's been doing this for generations, bringing them destruction over and over and over again. But verse number 13, for thou hast said in thine heart, now I want you in this case not to look for we and us as the Tower of Babel, those constructors said, but I want you to look at all the eyes, okay? I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregations in the side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Okay, what is he talking about there? He's just saying, I will be like the most high God. But verse 15 says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell into the sides of the pit. Here's this one who is the influence of Babylon and has been destroying nations or attempting to destroy nations that and his beginning is saying, I will do this and I will do this and I will do this and I will make a name of myself. I'll be like God. And guess what the nations have reflected over and over and over again by their trying to accomplish and do certain things. They're trying to make a name for themselves and in some cases trying to replace God that they will be like God. They'll make a name for themselves. The problem for all of us, we like uh, uh, in our hearts to make sure or to, to think that we are the ones making the decisions, that we are the ones who have the right to do whatever we want to do, that God really doesn't have a place in this, that we're going to go ahead and do our own thing and go our own way and accomplish something really great. That's a lie that's been pronounced for the last 6,000 years that you can be like God. Here these individuals thought they were going to get security by making a name, that they were going to bring themselves together by the building of this tower. They were seeking meaning and fame by tra transgressing, as some have said, the place of God. They were going to go to where God was at and show up there that they were somehow going to be with the Most High God. I mean, this is prideful construction that goes on here, but you see this intentional deconstruction on God's part. It, it's kind of, there's humor at play here at verse 5, that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Okay, that's, that's a, a joke there, because here they're building it in the heavens, and they've got this thing that's constructed to the heavens, and no, the Lord's got to, well, humorously come down <laughs> to where they're at, and oh, okay. Let's take a look at this. And so they really hadn't accomplished what they thought they did, but the Lord goes down, uh, and the, when you see that type of statement, it's just that he is going to make a judgment decision. He's just doing his investigative work before he makes a judgment. He comes down to see the city, the tower, which the children of men, children of Adam, which is kind of an ironic term that these are people made of dust of the ground, as children of men builded. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They have all one language. And this they begin to do. Look at what they're doing when they're all together here. They're trying to do uh, all sorts of things in pride to make a name for themselves and to do what I haven't asked them to do. To do the exact opposite. I mean, they're beginning to do this. Verse 6, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. If we keep them together, they're going to have all sorts of sin they're going to do. If we keep them together like this, we're going to have a repeat of what we had uh, just before the flood. That the imagination of their hearts was only evil continually. You're suddenly going to have a whole group of people together that are always uh, able to interject and, and to have conversations with one another. And they're going to come up with all sorts of bad ideas. And this is going to get worse and worse. And so what I'm going to do is this, is I'm going to bring a judgment 
or we might say a punishment, a correction to what goes on here. Verse 7, you have this, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. God just simply says, okay, they're getting together, they're trying to work on these projects to make a name for themselves. What I'm going to do is suddenly change their languages. And my guess is that it's changed along family lines and the like. But whatever the case is and how this happened, it immediately leads to confusion. You have people that were once talking to one another now angry because they can't communicate with one another. I mean, some of us understand this. You've been to other cultures before and you've tried to communicate when you knew what their language was. And the frustration that takes place in you trying to even simply order a meal at a fast food restaurant in a foreign country, uh, there can be a lot of frustration there. But imagine this, in an instant, all of a sudden these languages change and the confusion that immediately is wrought when you have something, someone you think is possibly mocking you in that because they're making up this noise over here and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. What happens is this, is that the confusion leads, as you see at the end of verse number eight, so the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of the earth. They left off to build the city. You start this, this statement, that individuals are all together of one language, and here you have them now spread out. They go their different directions. They go with the people that they can actually communicate with and be with. And from thence upon the face of the earth, they left off to build. And the irony of this in verse number 9 is explained in this. Verse 9 is kind of a commentary at the end of the story. It says this, Therefore is the name of it called Babel. See, originally that word Babel means the idea of gate. Okay, we're building a gate to heaven. Sadly, after this, that's not what that meant. Amongst the nations, that name meant now confusion. We even have it in our culture today where we talk about people babbling. You say, what are they babbling? They're not making any sense. Uh, even in our culture, it means that type of thing. This name that was, well, a name that was going to be impressive. We are ones who have gotten to the gate of God. No, now it's just, okay, a complete failure. <clears throat> and you say, well, what do we walk away with a passage like this? You know, is the solution that we all learn languages of other people so we can all get together? You know, what, 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 what do we do with a passage like this? Well, just understand that from generation to generation after this, nations have been lifted up in pride. They think they're going to solve all the problems by their own ingenuity, by their own genius, by their own smarts, that they'll make a name for themselves, whether it is by conquering other people or coming up with new technology that somehow they're going to impress and you're saying, who are you trying to impress? Well, other people. Well, you're not supposed to be trying to impress other people. You're supposed to be trying to live in relation to God. Amen. And you see, as you go through the history of the, the scriptures and you look at the different things that go on in the scripture, you find a nation that rises up by the name of Babylon. 
Okay, Babylon's here, everybody spreads away from it, it does rise up for, for thousands of years in different shapes or form, but by the time you get to about 600 uh, BC, you have this empire under an individual by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who builds himself an empire. It ranges from Egypt all the way up into Asia Minor. It's the world's largest empire to that time. It's a magnificent kingdom. And even God uh, in his dealing with Nebuchadnezzar said, this kingdom is a magnificent kingdom. When he brings the statue that represents all the nations that follow after Babylon, who's the head of this? It's this golden head that's there uh, with the glories of it, uh, this kingdom. And as you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he is an exemplary example of what the people of Babel were like, what Satan's like, because you get to chapter 4, and there's this story where in chapter 4, he is delighting in the fact of this great city Babylon that he has built. I did this. And you're thinking, no, you didn't do this. You were building upon generations before you. You did build a few things here, but he is, he is lifted up. This is an individual, remember, on multiple occasions attempted to have people worship other things. Perhaps that statue in Genesis or Daniel chapter two was a statue of himself. But he's been doing this for, for uh, many years during the time that Daniel's there, that he's trying to get people to worship him, be impressed by him, and he thinks this in his heart. And it's at that point where he's lifted up in pride that God says, okay, enough. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the known world at that time, walks around like a wild animal on all fours and eats grass. He realizes that he is not one that can match the glories of the God of heaven. In fact, when you get to his testimony, when he gets done uh, with all of this, he makes this statement at the end that he just simply says this. Verse 28, after he comes out of his mind being like this, he, he says uh, this statement. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven. My understanding returned in me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? And he then ends with this statement, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And Nebuchadnezzar, having this first real major kingdom as far as the scriptures laying out for us, uh, that this man's a part of, he just simply acknowledges this, that God can take a kingdom like that and in an instant drop it from the heights of glory to complete destruction. I mean, Babylon is a picture of this and that the nations uh, over and over and over again are lifting themselves up against God. You say, when does this change or does this ever change that the nations continue to lift themselves up against God, uh, that they can't get together, they're always arguing with one another, they're always fighting, uh, they're always trying to best one another? And you begin to see a change because the nation of Israel, who was really chosen by God and described as their responsibility to be a light to the nations, 
What the nation of Israel is supposed to do is to lift up God for all the nations to see what he's like. And they had this temple where you could come and see what this God was like and the worship of him. And Israel fails miserably at this. And when their Messiah does come, Jesus, the Christ, who comes from Nazareth, this one who is the answer to the beginning of the book of Genesis 3 and verse 15, this one who can conquer Satan, the nation rejects him. The nation of Israel will not follow him. And you're just kind of going, oh, well, this isn't going to work very well. The one who's supposed to lift up God, they failed completely in acknowledging who he is. But you get to Acts chapter 2, and there's something unusual that happens. In Acts chapter 2, you have an individual who had been a failure, a man by the name of Peter, who stands up and he and individuals around him have been filled with the Holy Ghost. And what they're doing is preaching in languages that they've never learned. They were unlearned, uneducated Galileans for the most part. And they're speaking the message of the good news in languages, nations of people who have come from all over the world to this festival of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And these individuals are saying, we are hearing the words of God declared to us. You say, well, what's happening there? Well, God is bringing nations of people and tongues of people together. And it's not because of man's effort. It's that they can come together because there's one by the name of Jesus who can bring the nations together. He is the one who will one day physically rule, but he has that ability because he is God to bring the nations together. And you look at the teachings of the New Testament throughout, there is this understanding that in the church, what you have is people that had been separated from one another, who didn't get along with one another because their national lines suddenly have the ability to get together. You have in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 11, it says this, uh, excuse me, Paul talking to the church at Ephesus, he says this, wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, or we might say that we're Gentiles is just a fancy word for nations. You were nations uh, outside the nation of Israel who were called the uncircumcision by them, which were called the circumcision in flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Christ, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hatred even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself twain, uh, twain, one new man, so making peace that he might reconcile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off and to them that were nigh for him. We both have access by one spirit unto the father. What he's just simply saying is this. You had the Jews who viewed all the nations as people who could never have a right, a right relationship with God. And through Jesus Christ, there's this wall that is just taken down. And now you can have people of different nations, nationalities that can get together in a body called the church. It's not that they lose their nationality, 
but they are now a part of a group that is following Christ. They can get along where once they didn't. They now have peace with one another where there was once confusion and hatred. Now you have a unity that is given by Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in his teaching on the gifts in the church, he made this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink in one spirit, we're able to get together around Christ. Nations and people can. Now we'll say this, has this body called the church eliminated mankind's attempts to solve all the problems of mankind by their own strength? I mean, I was reading through a commentary And one made this question, just threw it out there. Is the United Nations building in New York a long shadow of the Tower of Babel? Do you know what the United Nations is attempting to do is to bring all the peoples of the world together that don't get along with one another? In fact, they're attempting to end all wars, all strife between the nations. Ironically, what they have in their General Assembly written on their wall is a verse from Scripture taken right out of context. The verse that's on the wall there uh, makes this statement. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The problem is they take it out of context because the first three verses before that is talking about the one who will come at the end of times who will bring the nations together, one Jesus Christ. See, mankind has for generations still attempted to solve their problems without God. And they've ignored him. And then they use what he says and they take it out of context uh, to apply it to themselves. That they're going to do this, that they're going to bring priests to the world. As you read through the context of Scripture, you get to the book of Revelation and you find that there is a united effort by the peoples of the world to gather themselves together against God. They're doing war against God and against the Lamb and against His followers. You read through, that's what's happening in the book of Revelation. The nations are gathering themselves together and what they find is an individual that they think is the chief of men. In fact, his number is 666, which is the number of man. And so you have this uh, three times, it's really saying he's the best of men. This one who we call the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness. What you find is that he is an individual initially in his reign uh, and rule of power is an individual who solves problems seemingly he's one who seemingly through effort and human ingenuity is able to solve the problems between nations and bring them together but what you find right in the middle of that tribulation all of a sudden you he turns and lifts himself up in pride and he goes and marches into the temple that will be built at that point and sits down in the middle of that temple and declares himself to be god and revelation 13 talks about this he's going to force the nations and the people to worship him if not they are going to die because they do not receive his mark He's the solution. He's the chief of mankind. He's the answer. And you say, who's behind him in this? You find that there's a prophet that's preaching about him and one who powers him, who is Satan, this dragon, that old serpent, the devil. And what you find is that the nations will attempt to solve all of their problems and unite without God. One last time. 
and it's not going to happen. So read Revelation 19, that this one comes back and these nations that have warred against him will, by the word of his mouth, be destroyed. And he will rule for a thousand years and all the nations will flood to Jerusalem. Nations that would have nothing to do with them, now they will come to Jerusalem to see this one who rules and reigns there. The Jews at that time will do their job. They will actually call people to come to Jerusalem to meet the Messiah, this one who rules and reigns, who is the one who's the Savior. But you get to the end of that thousand-year reign, you find that the, the people once again get together and they're going to try and fight against God. At the end of that thousand years, Satan's released and you have individuals who are born into that kingdom for the thousand years that haven't accepted Christ as Savior. They're going to rise up and then all of a sudden you read in Revelation chapter 20 that everything disappears and people stand before God at the great white throne judgment. But as you read the story, you get to the end, you have that and you go, that's it. Well, no, then you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and 23 and it talks about what heaven's like. And you might pass over some of the statements as you read through uh, what's going on in the book of Revelation because we're excited about the fact, okay, there's these walls and there's these gates and there's all these different things going on. And we might miss some of the statements that are made about God and the nations. I mean, as you read through the book of Revelation, where you find praise of God during the tribulation of people that are surrounding the throne, you have people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people that are praising God. But when you get to heaven someday, uh, you'll find this. It says in Revelation 21, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof, and the city hath no need of the sun, neither moon to shine in it. For the glory of the Lord did lighten it, the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. The gates of it shall not be shut for day, for, or neither for there for night. And they shall bring the glory and honor of nations into it. There shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here you have people who are followers of God that are from every nation, and they're bringing the glory of the nations into it. You go, what does that mean? They're just simply bringing and glorifying a God that nations and peoples and tongues could be a part of this city that was built and made by God. They can be a part of this. And then the statement John says in, in chapter 22, verse 1, he says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. In the midst of the street thereof, and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruit, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God, the Lamb shall be in it, his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, they shall need no candle, neither light of sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Do you realize that God's intent is not to be exclusive and saying, I don't want certain groups of people in heaven. No, he wants all nations and all people and all tongues to enjoy being with him forever. You see this right at the beginning. He says, I've got this table of nations of people. I know who they are. I know what they're like. I'm going to attempt to have them drawn towards me, even though they lift themselves up in pride. I'm going to have this nation of Israel that does this. They don't do a very good job. I'll bring my son into this world, and he'll save them. 
and be a light to them that they need. And he'll bring the nations together through his son, Jesus Christ. As we look around a room of individuals like this, we, you know, I, I jokingly a few years ago, my sister had to take something for a doctor's appointment and she went through some of, they, they went through her ancestry. <laughs> we were surprised by what we actually were and what we weren't. And my name's French. Betri. Uh, I think it's short for Beatrice. I'm not sure, but whatever the case may be. But that's our name. We thought, okay, you know, we're going to be, you know, a large number of French, you know, descent and whatever else like that. And my sister got it back and we're 2% French. Like, really? But there were a whole lot of other ones that surprised us that, that you know, hey, we're, we've got that in our background. You know, as we went around this room, we would have people from different cultures and lives and tongues and people. And you'd say, you know, I came to know Christ as Savior. And you're going, look at that. There's somebody from that nation, that people, that tongue, that one day, way back when, rebelled against their God and said, hey, we'll go our own way and do our own thing. But through Jesus Christ, what God is able to do is bring people from all of those places and all of those people together and they will be with him forever. They don't have to build a tower to get there. They don't have to build a gate to get there. No, it's through Jesus Christ, the son, who will bring all the nations together. And I trust you're one of those people that knows that savior and that Christ, and that you're going to be with him forever as one of those people, tongues, nations, and delighting in his presence. Lord, we thank you. We as human beings can mess things up. In our pride and our effort, we fall far short of what we should be. God, we're thankful that you and your divine plan had a Savior that was going to come and be able to solve the problems of individuals, but also bring nations together. That individual, Jesus, who died on the cross, is one to whom all the nations can call upon and be saved. So, Lord, we're thankful for your wisdom. It far exceeds our wisdom, our skill, our ability. There's no way that we could have built something to get into your presence or done enough, but you provided your son. And we thank you for that. Lord, we do pray for the nations of our world, our nation and others, that there is a need for them to know Christ. That is the only thing that's truly going to solve their problems. That the solution for mankind is not better agriculture or better politicians or better technology. No, it's that they need Christ. And so, Lord, we do, and even in this time, we pray for your servants that are in the world around the globe, that they've learned a language so that they can proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give them power as they call people from different regions of the world, from Asia, from South America, from Africa, from Europe, from Australia, from the islands of the seas. We pray that you would give them power, that individuals in different lands would see Christ and accept him as Savior so that one day they too can be part of that heaven 
and part of the nations that are bringing glory and in praise to you that you can save all people. We thank you, Lord, for saving us, that you didn't look on what our nationality was, but that your son was willing to die for us, no matter who we were, what people we were, and that you hear our cry when we call out in faith. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in the name of the Son. Amen.